All right, let's return. We are in the book of Exodus, chapter 4. And we are now following Moses as he's finally ready to go and be the messenger that Christ has called him to be. He was, of course, beckoned by God at the burning bush. He was commissioned for this ministry to be a faithful messenger, and now he's finally ready to go. He's ready to go with his brother at his side. However, with all of the enthusiasm of embarking in this new ministry, immediately things are not going so well. And so discouragement is right around the corner for Israel, for Moses, and the people of God. And that's really the discouragement that comes from false advertising, you might say. Now, have you ever been there? you ever been frustrated or discouraged on the claims of false advertising? They promise one thing, but you go and purchase it, and it turns out to be maybe something entirely different. You've been duped by those advertisements, or as you go on Amazon, those enhanced pictures, such that when your package actually arrives to you from Amazon, you figure out that either the pool floaty that you ordered shrunk in transportation, or the person who was photographed on the tube in the picture was a dwarf or a gnome, or they lied to you. Your cat cannot even sit on this floaty, let alone you in the middle of the pool. Of course, under such circumstances, recourse can be made. You can return it to Amazon. Or if it's really bad, you can sue them. Did you hear the latest news about the hot sauce brand Texas Pete? They're being sued. They're being sued for false advertising because, as it turns out, there's not much Texan, if anything, about Texas Pete. It's made and originated from North Carolina. But they needed an American name, and so they chose Texas Pete. I mean, how dare they, right? Well, it was too much for Philip White, a Californian, by the way. Like, why does he care? who's now suing the company for false advertising after purchasing his $3 bottle of mediocre hot sauce to find out that it's nothing to do with Texas. I'm sure the psychiatric trauma from discovering this truth must have crippled him for days. I mean, are we a litigation society or what? Well, looking to the promises of God, have you ever wondered if God should be sued for false advertising? You ever thought of that? Like walking through your life, and it's getting hard, and then you go back and look at God's promises, and they don't seem to match. God, you said this, but this is what I'm walking through in my life. This seems like false advertising. And it's in those moments, those realizations, that's where your faith starts to wobble, maybe crack, and it might crumble altogether. I mean, have you been there? That's where Moses and Israel find themselves as we turn to Exodus now, mainly chapter 5. And from this, we're going to find ways that God will rebuild their faith, that He will rebuild ours as well as we struggle with these discouragements. We're going to look at the pitfalls to discouragement, how we might avoid them, the pitfalls to doubt and discouragement, how we might either avoid them or at least survive them. Because some of these pitfalls we're going to talk about, like suffering, you can't avoid. You will fall into well, how does God get us out? Because understand, the pitfalls to discouragement, the pitfalls to doubt in the Christian life, they're everywhere. They're really lurking around every corner. And you cannot avoid them all. So how can your faith sustain and survive? How can it remain strong? Well, it must remain strong. It must be founded on something that doesn't move, something that doesn't change. So the word for us this morning is never lose sight of God, who He is, and His unchanging promise. We rest there your faith will remain strong. You're building your life on the rock. 
But as soon as we put it on something else, we've fallen and discouragement is on our heels. We'll look at five pitfalls that lead to discouragement, that lead to doubt, exampled for us in this text. And the first pitfall is this, the pitfall of selective hearing. The pitfall of selective hearing. And in a way, this is how we might set ourselves up for failure. We become selective hearers or selective believers about God's Word. We pick and choose the things we like or want to hear or want to believe such that when life turns out differently, not what we expected, that's where our faith gets rocked. I mean, do you know these people? Is your spouse one of these people? No show of hands. Of the selective listener? Or maybe it's your children, the selective listener? Children, go do a chore. Wait, you didn't hear me? And then you say, I have ice cream, and suddenly everybody's listening. How does this happen? We're selective hearers. We only hear what we really want to. But when we do this with God's Word, we run into problems. We might even then turn, as things don't turn out how we expect, we might turn to start accusing God, blaming God. But really, it's this pitfall of selective believing. We only believe what we want to. And we find that unfold here at the end of Exodus chapter 4 through what as it starts, it's really a happy occasion. There's this rising faith and faithfulness in Israel. There's an excitement, well, God is here and He's ready to do something. However, it doesn't last as the chapter unfolds and goes to the next. And it's not because God's Word changed or God's control lessened, but their faith wavers because they were selective listeners and their circumstances didn't turn out how they expected. Well, let's see in the beginning here how it goes, because their, their mission, Moses' mission, goes better than he first thought. Look at this, Exodus 4, 29. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words. Remember, he's the spokesman on Moses' behalf. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses, and he did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel, that, they, that He had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. Now, this is the right response. This is the way they should respond, in humble obedience, humble worship to God. And the people, they did understand rightly the sum of it, the crux of what God was teaching them, or what God's message was through Moses, namely, that the Lord had visited Israel and seen their affliction. And this word visit, this is like a technical term in your Hebrew Bible. It doesn't merely mean like I dropped by to come see you. It's a dropping in that it communicates care. It's a dropping in that says, I'm going to come alongside. I'm here to help. I'm here to redeem. I'm here to work. I'm not disinterested. I'm right beside you and ready to come and do something about it. And remember what we saw the, toward the end of chapter 4 last week. What did he say about Israel? That they are his firstborn son. He loves no one more than his firstborn son. He's committed to them. And now he's saying, I've heard your groaning. I've heard your troubles. I'm here. And Israel's like, this is awesome. Praise God he's here. What's he going to do? And so they bow and worship. They're excited. Even still, I'm not quite sure they understand the whole plan. Because we read in verse 30 that Moses and Aaron told the people, note this, all the words. 
which the Lord had spoken to Moses. And if they spoke all the words, that's going to include that bit about Pharaoh's not going to like this very much. Remember that? Look back to Exodus chapter 3, verse 19. Here's something that the Lord had told to Moses. God had revealed that, I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders I will do in it, and after that he's going to let you go. But he's going to be resistant. It's only by the strong hand of God that he could possibly let you go. So Israel, think for a moment. If Pharaoh's going to resist this, what does this mean? We're on the brink of war. This is a battle going to happen. There is a struggle here if we're ever going to get Israel out. So Israel, that means this. Things are going to get worse before they ever get better. That's the reasonable conclusion. Pharaoh's not going to let them go. It's going to take the mighty hand of God to bring them out. But it seems like as God gave those words to Moses, Moses, and Moses and Aaron spoke all those words to the people, it seems like Israel didn't really hear that part. They seemed to suffer from selective listening or believing. Sure. Oh, I love that part. He's going to come and redeem us. Oh, I love that part about we get heaven by grace. Oh, I love about that part that he cares for us and so and so forth. But I don't know about that other part. Oh, I I don't know about reading that part of Scripture. I just don't even go there. It's so hard. Oh, I don't know about those promises. I don't know about that whole, like, if you desire to be godly, you're going to suffer for Christ Jesus thing. I don't know. I don't like that. And so when we start to ignore parts of God's Word, what's going on, but that we are setting ourselves up for colossal discouragement. By not hearing... By effectively not believing all of God's Word, they set themselves up for doubt and discouragement of such a case that eventually it looks like in this text that their faith crumbles altogether. Their expectations about what God's going to do and then what happens become so dashed that in a short while, look over at chapter 6, verse 9. Moses comes and speaks to the people again, and how do they respond? So this is Exodus 6, 9. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, and they did not listen to Moses. Why? Because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. They are so discouraged, they can't even hear the Word of God anymore. But this is the hard truth of life in this fallen world. Even when following God, even when following after Christ, It's not going to get easy. And actually, your life will become harder for trusting and following Jesus. You're going to run into opposition now in a way that you never did before. Opposition from without and from within in the heart. It's true. Praise God, it's true. The Christian message, we call it the gospel. What does that mean? It's good news. It's the best news. It's the news that God cares and He's come and He's visited and redeemed through His Son, Christ, that He will mercifully forgive. This is the best news. But the New Testament also makes clear that to trust Jesus as your Savior means to submit to Him and trust Him as your Lord, which that means you can count on difficulty, trouble, opposition. That means you can count on suffering. For what is it that Christ promises us? 
Is it health, wealth, and prosperity in this life? No, it's not. Actually, following Jesus will likely cost you those things in this life. Your health, wealth, and prosperity is going to be spent in generosity, giving out to others like your Savior did. And so then Christ's question to you, you have to assess, is it worth it? Consider all of His words carefully. If you're going to be His disciple, He promises this. This is Mark 8, verses 35 through 37. One of many examples you can bring from Jesus' ministry. And He says this, For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What can a man give in return for his soul? I mean, again, to get some perspective, to see things through the standard of God's Word by that evaluation, think about your soul. It's eternal. You can't give anything in exchange for it. And the thought that God would save it by grace, what a mercy. But then he says, but you have to lay down your life for me. So you have to ask, is it worth it? That's why Jesus in the gospel, he talks about this. He says, count the cost. Know what I'm calling you to. It's not just the good bits you want to hear about. It's the whole thing. I want your soul because I will save it, but you have to give it to me. So don't get the wrong impression about Christ. You need to count the cost. That means we need to listen and hear all the words of Christ. Let's not be selective listeners. The second pitfall here is the pitfall of man-fearing. The pitfall of man-fearing. Because what we find is that sometimes the staunch, hardened unbelief of others, that can then actually bounce back and assault our faith. You felt this? And suddenly their opinions start to loom a lot larger in our minds than actually the truth of God and His Word. And we find that example here with Moses and Aaron. Now, as we began, Moses, as we turn down to chapter 5, I think he was emboldened by how things were going so far. He was pretty excited. Because remember, what did he say is is one of his first objections as he began chapter 4? He's like, listen, you're going to give me God's message to go to these people. They're not going to believe. And then he goes, the end of chapter 4, and what happens? Just as God predicted, they believe. And I think Moses is starting to think, okay, all right, maybe this is going to work after all. After all, God's promises are going to come true. Where's Pharaoh? Bring him on. Let's go find him. So they show up in Egypt, and they give the message with great boldness. Look at this, verse 1 of chapter 5. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, right? The God of Israel, let my people go that they may hold a feast for me in the wilderness. God said it, Pharaoh, Yahweh, bow to him, let us out of here. Pharaoh isn't so impressed. Verse 2. But Pharaoh said, Who's Yahweh? Who's the Lord? Who's the Lord that I should obey His voice and let His people go? I do not know the Lord. Moreover, I will not let Israel go. Who is Yahweh? I'm not scared about this guy. I've never even heard of him. As if to say, look, I'm a God too, Pharaoh says, and my kingdom's quite powerful. People all over the world know my name. Who is this? Who is Yahweh? 
See, the pharaohs in Egypt at the time, they saw themselves as divine. They saw themselves as the representative and executor of the will of the gods of Egypt on the earth. They were powerful, and that power was consolidated in Pharaoh. He was not intimidated by this Jewish God. I never even heard of this Yahweh. And besides, if He's the God of this people, look at yourselves. You're pitiful. You're slaves. This Yahweh, He can do whatever He wants, but I'm not letting Israel go. And at this staunch opposition, this unmoved, hardened heart of Pharaoh, you see then Moses and Aaron suddenly, what was their bold faith? It begins to crack and it begins to crumble. And this is as predicted, at least in the sense of Pharaoh wasn't keen on this message. God told him that would be the case. And yet, through that selective listening, right, the strength of Pharaoh's unfazed unbelief now startles Moses. Such that he and Aaron don't abandon the whole track. They don't just jump out of Egypt. But as they go back to Pharaoh, they frame now this whole thing quite differently to him. Okay, because look at this. In verse 1, they were making demands. The Lord God said, let this people go. And Pharaoh's like, uh, no, I'm not scared. Okay, let's try this again. Verse 3. Look at this. Then they said, the God of the Hebrews, he's met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to our God. Lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. Please, O Pharaoh, please, please, pretty please, let us go, even for just a couple days. Let us go sacrifice to the Lord, please. And then they totally fabricate this next point. Lest God fall upon us with pestilence or with sword. The Lord threatened no such thing upon His people. So where did that come from? Best I can suspect, this is Moses and Aaron. They're trying to make the Lord seem more impressive to try and intimidate Pharaoh. So they lie about him. Oh, he's a violent God, you know. Terrible God, our God. He might kill us. Pretty, please, please, oh, Pharaoh, let us go. But Pharaoh's not moved. Compassion is not his strength to the Jews anyway. What's Pharaoh concerned about? You guys aren't working. That's what I'm concerned about. Look at verses 4 and 5. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, Behold, the burden of the, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. Get back to work, you lazy bums. You're keeping them from what they're supposed to be doing, serving me, Pharaoh says. He's not moved at all. And this is anticipated, right? His heart will be hard. But such a defiance of the truth has proved more than once, right, a wet blanket on a newfound faith in, say, a new Christian. Maybe you experienced that as you walked through the Christian life as you came to Christ. You know, when you first heard the gospel, you were on fire. You had this love for Jesus, love for the truth, and you were just compelled. You had to tell everybody around you about Him. Because you're thinking, because what have you seen in Jesus? Oh, He's so good. He's so merciful. He's forgiven me. I have truth to stand by and live on. 
How, how will they not believe if they can just see? They just need to hear about Jesus. And so if your great delight, you tell about him, you tell about your great Savior, about how he saved you by grace and all that he did on the cross. And you, and you tell your best friend or your coworker or your spouse, and they're like, Ugh, okay, that's nice for you. That's nice for you, Ricky. But I just don't believe in Jesus myself, understand. Oh, maybe that's nice for you, but I can't believe in a God who would allow suffering in this world. Have you seen what's going on in Ukraine? Or, really? You think the God of the Bible is impressive? He seems so, read the Old Testament, he's moody. He's partial. He's evil even. So the responses might be anything from blah to just vitriol back at you, accusing you. So you give the gospel in great affection and confidence, and then to see them so unaffected, so unconcerned, so uncaring about their souls, maybe even great animosity towards you in response, and that just stirs up discouragements and doubts in us too, if we're not careful. Maybe I am taking this all too serious. Maybe I am being a little too intense about my faith. Maybe I need to keep this kind of thing more to myself. I don't know if people really want to hear this. Or maybe even, maybe it's not as true as I thought. Maybe God really isn't great. I didn't think about that question. But understand, truth is not determined by any popularity contest or poll or vote. Your opinion or the opinion of anyone else about Christ and the gospel changes nothing about the reality of its veracity and truthfulness. Regardless of how disinterested they seem or how much they deny it, may we not be ashamed. Why? For the gospel is the power of God, and there is no other power to save a soul. They need to hear this power, and they need the Spirit to work to turn a heart. And just because they don't want to hear it doesn't mean it's not true, it's not powerful. And so may we not be ashamed to speak it. May we not be fearing men, but fearing God, and so then being a faithful messenger. Third, the third pitfall here is the pitfall of serious suffering. Exodus 5, 6 through 14. Satan himself knows, embodied here by Pharaoh, that suffering can be a real discouragement to our faith. I bring him Satan because he was the one that asked for Job's health. Remember that? Let me attack his health. Let me attack and take his possessions. Because Satan knew that Job would curse God if his circumstances went sour. And if you don't remember, go back and read those opening chapters. You can't get much more sour than that. And that approach is embodied here with Pharaoh, who's going to raise the severity of the oppression on the Jews who are slaving in Egypt. You still got to make bricks. I just ain't giving you straw no more. You got to go get that on your own you still got to produce all the same work. And so their already back-breaking, hope-crushing labor just gets heavier. Look at verses 6 through 8. The same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, you shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves, verse 8. But the number of bricks that they made in the past, you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. 
Therefore they cried, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. By Pharaoh's assessment, they have too much time on their hands. So he's been talking with Moses and Aaron, and now as they've been excused, he turns around and he goes to address the people. He goes to those overseeing them. He said, they got too much time on their hands. If, they, if they're worried about this God and they want to go worship him, they need to be worried about their work and what they're doing to serve me. They need to be keeping busy. Their idleness is letting their minds wander to fantasies. That's how he frames it, looking at verse 9. He wants to keep their minds off Moses and Aaron's, as he puts it, lies. He says in verse 9, Pharaoh does, Let heavy your work be laid on the men that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. First off, even the way he frames it, that these are lying words. No, these are the truths of God. And yet, Satan, through the suffering, wants you to doubt them, wants you to question them, wants you to see them as lies. He's the great deceiver, isn't he? He will call the truth lies and the lies truth. And this is the epitome of Israel's stench of unrighteousness. Coming out in Isaiah chapter 5, when we read this, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. It's all mixed up and upside down, but this is what the deceiver does. And we hear it the same. They may tell you, your God's a bigot. He's not loving. You're not loving. You're a bigot and oppressive like he is. Because you don't accept people for the way they want to be or for who they are or etc., etc. They throw these words at you. Don't buy it. It's lies. They are lying words. What our society is doing, they're searching for ways to rationalize that which is entirely irrational. Rebellion against your Creator. And they can only do it by lies. But like Pharaoh here, they don't merely do it by lies. They might do it by suffering too. That is, it's not just words, but sticks and stones and whips and what else? Look at verses 10 to 14. Here's where the physical suffering begins. So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, Thus says Pharaoh. Now just stop there for a moment. Where do we hear a phrase like that often in the Bible and have already seen it? It's not thus says Pharaoh, it's what? Thus says the Lord. But what's Pharaoh saying? I'm the God of Egypt and this people. He says, I will not give you straw, verse 11. Go and get your straw yourselves wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced in the least. So the people were scattered throughout the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. And the taskmasters were urgent, complete your work, your daily task each day, as when there was straw. And the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, why have you not done all your task of making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? Of course, they all know the reason, but this is the heat of suffering. The work is harder, it's all the more unreasonable, and now they're beating even the foreman. These are probably Jews appointed over the other slaves. These were the ones to keep track of all of the bricks, making sure they were meeting their quotas. Even they're feeling the tip of Pharaoh's spear or whip now. And surely this is not what they expected when they heard the message at the end of chapter 4 
apparently. Again, they heard a message of hope, deliverance, rescue. But this, but this, I didn't sign up for this. Moses, I didn't want you to come to Egypt to bring me this. And so few pitfalls can be so discouraging to our faith than suffering. But listen to this. This is not a pitfall that you can avoid entirely either. We saw it already. But the path that Christ tells you that he himself walked as he went to the cross, it's a path. It's not the path of least least resistance. It's not the easiest way. It's just the right way, which for us means take up your cross and go follow him. That's why Peter told the early Christians this. He said in 1 Peter 4, verse 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But that's what we do. We run into difficulty and we're like, God, what's up? This is strange. This is weird. I'm beloved of God. Why is this hard? He says, don't count it as a surprise. This is par for the course. This is what the Christian life looks like. And yet, when the suffering comes, right, it's so easy, isn't it, to lose sight of God when these trials get turned up. But even people of faith, strong faith, we know this. We know this struggle, and we know the real pain of it. If you're questioning this, go read the Psalms, right? So often the psalmists are crying out to God, Why are you cast down, O my soul? My God, why have you forsaken me? Oh, Lord, how long do we have to wait? Are you there, God? Are you listening? Do you hear? We say it like this. Why would you let this happen, God? I thought you loved me, God. Why the delay? Why do I need to go through this? And those are all honest questions. Like I said, I think captured by many of the Psalms. But I heard someone say, and this is the real difference, when you're coming into that pitfall, here's the issue. When the suffering gets turned up, where do you turn? Do you turn away from God or turn to Him? This is the only way, as we turn to Him, can we escape this pitfall. Fourth, we have the pitfall here of misplaced hope. We basically look to the wrong refuge, the wrong Savior, where there is no hope really at all. And we see that embodied with Israel as they are suffering. They go to the source. It seems like that's where I would get relief. They're going to go back to Pharaoh. But he has no Savior at all. Look at verse 15. Then the foremen of the people of Israel came and cried out to Pharaoh. So these are the ones in particular now being beaten. And they are crying out to Pharaoh. And I just want to stop there because that word cried, as in cried out, we've seen it already a number of times already in Exodus. And it was the cries of Israel that were going up to the Lord's ears. And what happened when the Lord heard their cries? Well, he's a good master. He's moved in compassion. That's why he comes down to visit and redeem because he cares. But here, their cries are now going to Pharaoh's ears. They cry to him. And interestingly, they don't merely ask for help, but they even accuse him or his people of doing wrong. Look at verse 15 again. Then the foremen of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, Why do you treat your servants or slaves like this? No straw is given to your servants. Yet they say to us, Make bricks. 
Behold, and now your servants are beaten. But the fault is in your own people, Pharaoh. Sure, he heard that well. It's not our fault that we're not making enough bricks. It's you. You're not giving us the straw we need. Help us. We'll make the bricks. But Pharaoh's ear is less than compassionate, isn't it? Verse 17. But he said, you are idle, as in lazy, slackers. That's why you keep saying, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Now you go get to work. No straw is going to be given you, but you must deliver on the bricks. What does this show about Pharaoh? We already knew that this was his mentality. He'd already called them lazy. He'd already called them idle. So why does Moses bother rehearsing this as he writes it for us to see? It seems like nothing new, but what does it show us? That he is a harsh master. He is thoughtless to the care of his slaves. He's unbending, uncaring. If it's possible, these cries of help seem to harden Pharaoh's heart even more against the, as he sees them, lazy Hebrews. So that's what happens as you cry to this false Savior. As opposed to when the cries went to God, they got compassion. Well, their cries are now flying up to the wrong master. Their hope is misplaced, and there was, no, there was never any hope for relief there. Pharaoh, like every false savior, is a harsh master. And we know this as we walk through the Christian life. Because doesn't sin work just like this in being a very harsh master? See, we go to the sinful desire, we think we'll have rescue from it, we think we'll find relief, and what we find is we give ourselves to it, we find more bondage, more pain as we get pulled deeper in. This is well illustrated by Phil Riken. He says this, he says, sin is the harshest of taskmasters. It always demands more and more from us while giving us less and less in return. Isn't that true? The more the lustful man indulges his fantasies, the less happy he becomes and the more sex he craves. The more, self, the more the selfish woman gets, the less content she grows and she still wants more. Satan never, never loosens his grip. He is always busy tightening the chains of our captivity. It is always, always more bricks and less straw. For it is the very nature of sin to seek to control the sinner's whole life. Then he ends it with this quote from our Lord Jesus, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. John chapter 8. Sin, Satan, the world are harsh, cruel masters. They won't give you relief even if they promise it. They give you bondage. Only the Son can set you free. He our Christ is the one who defeated sin, who loosed the chains and power of sin. He alone is our hope against these enslaving powers. Your cries, we must go to Him. And indeed, you know what is so good about this Savior? Not only can you cry to Him, but He invites you to. You know this well. What kind of master is our Christ? Let me remind you, we heard this in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 11, where he says, come to me. Come to me, who? All who labor and are heavy laden. Why? 
I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Jesus invites you. Learn from me, he says. What are you going to learn? That I'm gentle and lowly in heart. And what? You will find rest for your souls. For why? He says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. There's only hope in this master. Finally, we have the pitfall of forgetting patience. Verse 19 to verse 1 of chapter 6. They find no relief with Pharaoh, and so then they just go back the chain of command. They kick the buck down the line, and they recommence the blame game. They tried blaming Pharaoh. That didn't work. Well, let's go on to someone else. Let's look at verse 19. The foremen of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, you shall by no means reduce your number of bricks or daily task each day. It's like they're unmoved from this requirement. So verse 20, they met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh. So it's like, if you can imagine this room is like the Pharaoh's throne room and the foremen are there at Pharaoh's feet complaining, asking for help. And Moses and Aaron are right outside those doors waiting to hear how it's going to go. And then they come out. And it's like Moses and Aaron are like, what'd they say? How'd it go? You know what they went? Horribly. That's how it went. Moses, what have you done to us? Such that they actually call on the Lord to judge Moses for this. Look at verse 21. And then they said to them, the Lord look on you and judge because you made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. It's like, I wish you never showed up here with this message from God. Forget his promises. Forget God's word. There's no way, Moses, this can be God's plan. Somewhere you messed it up. You misheard something at the burning bush. This cannot be God's plan. And not surprisingly, Moses, I think, doesn't like being seen as a failure again at this. So he's pretty discouraged too. And so he joins in on the blame game. Only he just keeps moving the blame up the flagpole. We were at, Mo, we were at Pharaoh. Now it's on to Moses. And Moses takes it up with who's really in charge. He takes it up with God. He actually starts blaming God for what's happened. It's your fault, God. Look what you've done. Verse 22. In a way, I mean, just the audacity of this. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? You have wronged them. You have done them wrong. Why did you ever send me? And from here, one commentator just so succinctly demonstrates all the ways Moses is just questioning God. He's questioning God's goodness. Lord, why have you done evil to this people? That is, a good God would never let this happen with what Pharaoh's doing. Next, Moses questions God hold purpose. Why did you send me? God, it's like this. God, I told you this plan was a horrible idea. He's heartbroken. And finally, he challenges God's very actions in the whole ordeal. Look now at verse 23. For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, God... He has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. In the Hebrew, there's really no stronger way to say this. 
but you have done nothing to help this people. You've done nothing to deliver them. Instead of delivering them, you're making their oppression worse. God, what are you doing? How could you do this? Do you even care? We're trying to do the right thing and walk in obedience, and this is what we get? Forget being your people. But has that ever been you? You tried stepping out, doing the right thing, following God, going by His Word, and then things actually get worse in your life? You're trying to hold on to your Christian ethics in the workplace, and you were overlooked for a promotion then because you wouldn't play dirty like some of those ahead of you that got the promotion? Or maybe it's a Christian young lady, and she rebuffs the approach of a very interested and likable but unbelieving man. She says, by God's word, I shouldn't pursue that relationship. So she denies him, and yet she looks at the horizon. There's no Christian knight running down to sweep her off her feet. Or you finally, you, you build up the courage to, to finally share the gospel with that close friend or that close family member, and then they're offended. Like they cut off their relationship because of this. Or we could see this in the church very easily, right? You, you've done a wrong to a brother, and so you're going to go now and you're going to humble yourself. You're going to confess your sin. You're going to confess your wrong. You're going to try and work towards reconciliation. You're going to confess your wrong And then, instead of just forgiving you, they throw it in your face. Make the relationship worse. And then that's when you want to turn to heaven and say, but God, you promised. What is this? I didn't sign up for this. And so we play the blame game. Even still, with all of this, there is something we can commend Moses about in this. We touched on it already. But in the suffering, in the struggle, Moses doesn't run, to, run away from God. He runs to God. Even though he's discouraged, perhaps at an all-time high of discouragement, not like last time where he ran out of Egypt, now he turns to God and he cries out to God. Why? Because he knows he needs God. However this works, I need you, God, but I can't make sense of a lick of this. He knows he needs the Lord. And what does he get from the Lord in this moment? He gets perspective. He gets insight into the truth. Really, he gets a reiteration of the promises of God that's going to have to carry him and his faith all the way through this, far more than he can ever see or make sense of. Look then at verse 1. Here's God's response to Moses' cries. And there's mercy here. If you're the Almighty and somebody's blaming you for wrong, what would you do? Squash him? Here's what God does, verse 1, what the Lord said to Moses, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand, he will send them out, and with a strong hand, he will drive them out of his land. In response, the Lord says, but now, now's the time. Now you'll see what I'll do for Pharaoh. I was setting this all up. This was all part of the plan. But here's the thing, Moses. Here's the thing, Rick. Here's the thing, Jim. You're going to have to wait for it. You've got to trust me in this. You're going to need patient trust in my word, especially when it gets really tough in the meantime. If we forget patience, this pitfall 
that we can fall into, throwing it aside. If we forget patience, if we forget His wisdom, we forget God's timetable, we forget His trustworthiness, oh, that'll plunge you into great discouragement. Why? Because you've just suddenly become so spiritually short-sighted, only seeing what's right in front of you. I am literally speaking extremely, severely short-sighted, that is, nearsighted. Without my contacts, which now at over 40, they're bifocal contacts, no comment, or without glasses, I literally cannot see past my nose. I wouldn't even know if any of you are here. I have my contacts in so I can see you. Don't worry about it. But the point is, when suffering comes into our world, it's like we've been hit in the face and our glasses fall off. And suddenly, in our pain and in our struggle, we're just consumed with what we can only see to the end of our nose, ourselves. We're consumed with the pain. We're consumed with what's right around us, and we've lost perspective. We've lost sight of His promise. We've lost sight of God and His faithfulness in the midst of all of this. And that's what's going on here for Israel and for Moses. Because here's the thing. This is so crucial. What is the role of the difficulty and the suffering? What does God have planned for this? What is it? But that we would turn to Him in it, trusting Him to carry us through it, that we would give it back to Him. That's where the New Testament so often goes. That's why Paul can say this that he does in Romans 8, verse 20. He says, For the creation was subjected to futility, to giving out, to breaking, to brokenness. Not willingly. Creation didn't ask for this. But why? Because of God who subjected it in hope. God had a hope for you as you walk through the brokenness of this world. And what is it? That you would feel the pain, feel the struggle, but then turn your heart to Him. That you would move your eyes up in hope. That's why the apostle goes on. He says, and not only the creation but we ourselves have the first fruits of the Spirit. We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope. You don't hope for what you already have. But if we hope for what we do not see, what happens? We wait for it with patience, perseverance, trust. Why? Because we know this God will keep all of His Word and He will not let a bit of it fall. That this pain is not the end. This pain is not eternal. This pain will stop and actually has a purpose in it. Isn't that why Paul in the next couple of verses will say this? We know this one, Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. Because His purpose in Christ, it doesn't fall. He will save us in Christ if you trust Him, if you give your life to Him. He will certainly do it. Why? Because He foreknew you. He has a plan here. He predestined you. He called you. He justified you. He gave His Son for you, and none of that changed even in the midst of the suffering you're in. So what's the word? Look to the promise. Look to the cross. He has not changed. So with whatever the trial, whatever the test, whatever the struggle, the suffering, we grieve Yes, we do. We groan. Oh, surely we do. We question, maybe like the psalmist for a time. Oh, yes, we do. We might ask why. But we grieve how? With hope. 
fully persuaded because he will not be moved. So get your eyes up. Get your glasses on again to get perspective. To see not just to the end of your nose, but to see the God behind it. That he is indeed working all things to good that we can trust him. But that means we have to wait for him. Let's pray that we can do that together. Let's pray.